Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today, someone I've wanted to have on the show probably since I first started, although that's maybe not technically true because I didn't even know I was going to do a second podcast episode when I did the first one talking to myself in my living room. Um, Formerly over at 538, and now I I like saying this, Sports Illustrated's Chris Herring. Thanks for coming on. Oh, man, no problem at all. I appreciate you having me. Big fan of your work. Well, thank you. Uh, Feeling is mutual. And we were just chit-chatting before we recorded here. One of my challenges, and I think you share the same thing, with this season has just been like getting into it after the bubble, after the lockdown, after everything that's gone on, and also making sense of it, right? Like just the idea of all these players missing games every night, Sometimes they're injured, sometimes they have COVID, sometimes they were near someone that have had COVID. Um, lineups are shuffled constantly. I've very much felt like it's dipping a, dipping the toe in the pool and not jumping in. And, and now I'm kind of hoping as we get toward the playoffs that maybe the basketball ramps up and I, I feel like I can trust what I'm seeing a bit more. Do you do you have a, a vibe about this? Or do you... Do you kind of feel like you're in the same place yeah I mean I, I so I, I feel like I'm someone who it's funny I'm not someone that takes you know frequent vacations I haven't had time to um between just kind of personal stuff that I'm working on or side stuff with books and and different things I've grown more and more appreciative of off seasons um <laughs> is probably one way to put it and granted I know that last season you know there was an unexpected what was that four or five, six month break that we had from everything? Um, I guess four month break that we had from everything, but that wasn't, you know, having time off for the virus as the world was trying to figure out what to do with the virus and how to handle the virus was not like a traditional break. It wasn't a restful time. It was a scary time. Um, I know at least for me, I know people who died. I have relatives that have gotten really sick. So it hasn't been like a comfortable time in this country or throughout the world. So even though basketball wasn't being played during it, there was still other stuff to kind of worry about. I know on the job at 538, they asked me to kind of transition back to what was my bread and butter before I covered the NBA and before I covered sports, which was to write news features on how the virus was impacting people. And so was doing that. So it wasn't really a, a restful time. So to not have real rest for those four months, even though it was away from basketball, then to have basketball back, then to have, what was it, like two months off? And much of those two months was kind of spent figuring out how much of a break are we going to give the players. Right. And quite frankly, a lot of those players like pushing back either vocally or, you know, kind of, impl- you know, implying that they weren't a fan of it, LeBron in particular. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, like being pleasantly surprised at how LeBron and the Lakers were doing to start the season, but I couldn't even really get all the way into it because I had so much stuff on my plate that never really got a chance to get done to begin with. Because even in those two months that the league was away, there's free agency, there's the draft, you know, there's training camp. So it was, it was just a, it's been a weird year and almost year and a half at this point. I've been trying to get a book done, um, which I'm, you know, I think within the next week I have to turn in every single thing I've got, fact checking, manuscript, citation. So, you know, it, it just hasn't felt like I've ever had a full opportunity to kind of grasp the game the way I tried to in the past. But, um, and quite frankly, yeah, with the injuries and everything else, no, I don't think there have been substantially more injuries than we normally see. But I would really be interested to, you know, someone to kind of look at the idea of if the sorts of players who are getting hurt are different, how many of the players that are getting hurt, particularly with like longer, more serious injuries, are guys that were in the bubble longer, that had less of a rest than everyone else um, relative to prior seasons. And um, so I, I am interested by some of that. It, it has kind of made for a strange season, as entertaining as it's been. It's been kind of watered down. I wrote recently about how um, the post-All-Star break has seen basically more blowouts by 20 points than we've seen, I think, in 53 years. And, you know, give or take a day or, you know, just kind of how the games play out on a given day, it, it's the most we've ever seen in NBA history after the All-Star break as far as blowouts. So it, it has felt weird where I've jumped in to watch way more basketball lately, but then every now and then you sit and watch and the games aren't very good, aside from the Knicks games, which it seems like all of them are almost like the Buffalo Wild Wings commercial where they <laughs> go into overtime or get really close no matter what. So it's been a very, very strange season. It's been exciting from the standpoint of individual performances with Steph and um, certainly Nikola Jokic and and Embiid's been incredible. um, Harden has been incredible. It it turns, but the injuries have been disheartening. And and I think potentially now, especially with the Nets, you start to wonder how it's going to really shape the playoff race. Yeah, no, that you you took me on a journey there because, um, and I think a lot of people who I know who cover the league kind of have this same fatigue right now, but it really does feel like a thread going back to the start of last season, which is the fall of 2019. And, and we're gearing up for the playoffs and we're going to end the playoffs in July. So that's going to be in a way kind of like a 22 month run where you didn't have a a planned off season. And of course, you know, we're talking about this as people who watch the sport and analyze it and consume it. Um, to say nothing of actually having to move your body through those paces and rhythms. One of the things I talked about when the bubble restarted last year was young players, first, second, maybe even third year guys, getting that three or four month window to work on their game as they would an off season. And then that's still part technically of their 2020 season. And then they have a very abbreviated break going into 2021. And so it's like, oh, someone goes from their second to their third year. Um, you know, maybe Luca or John Morant is an example or somebody like that, where typically you might expect more improvement, but maybe that improvement came between the shutdown and the bubble because they had more time to to kind of work in the natural rhythm of their off season growth, if you will. Um, yep. Yeah, I don't know if you I don't know if you buy that theory, but certainly that was something that was that was in my head as as you walked me through that like wow it's like going to be like a 22 month run here for everyone 
<sighs> yeah. And I mean, it's just like, I think you probably put it best, you know, if I can sit here and who knows whether it comes across as complaining or venting or what have you, but it's, I mean, it's, again, it's been kind of a heavy toll on the world um, during that time. And I, you know, I, I made a vow this year that no matter what, I wasn't going to be critical in any way, shape or form of Carl Anthony Towns. It's my job to be, um, you know, analytical and, and, and critical of the way these guys play. But like, I, I know what it is. Hell, I posted yesterday, um, you know, I still mourn the loss of my parents and can't imagine like what it's like to just have to put your head down and play basketball when you've watched the virus ravage your family. Mm. Um, and I don't remember whether it's six or seven people that he lost, including his mother, um, let alone the physical toll just from short off season for some teams, other teams that have gone a whole, you know, a long time without playing at all. Um, the, the, you know, he came really called a ramp up as far as training camp. Um, and then the condensed schedule, we, we had just gotten to a place where, you know, the season was longer, but you were building in for more rest time for these teams, um, as of like two years ago, as of a year ago. And then the virus hits and it's like the polar opposite happens. And it almost kind of feels like one of those high school tournaments where you're playing every day. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if we're tired and we're talking about, you know, just before the, the pod, you know, I were talking about just kind of how not having any breaks between kind of big things coming up in your day to day. Like imagine how players feel with that. And it, it's interesting. I tweeted a couple weeks ago. Um, you remember the, the, the game that Jamal Murray got injured in? Yep. Golden State. Um, yep. Yeah, that was a game where Golden State was trailing by quite a bit and, you know, the Nuggets were dominating. And then all of a sudden the tide started to shift and, you know, um, I'm trying to remember who it was in that game that was the, – the Nuggets were just kind of out of character where they were um, – I, I think even Monty Morris was like – got upset with somebody from the Warriors for dunking and kind of hanging on the rim and um, – it was right after the game where they'd imploded against the Celtics. And so I, I said in a tweet, like the Nuggets really have to grow up. Like they're just, they're, they're whining and complaining about everything. And they're, they're just not showing any composure and any resilience in these games. And like in mass, right after that Nuggets fans tweeted me like, Oh yeah, this team has no resolve because they only came back from three to one twice last year. <laughs> one. And two, and they're like, also, it feels like you're being a little bit overly harsh here because, you know, the Nuggets have played, what was it, like four games in six days, five games in eight days, something like that. Like they'd played a bunch of games and, you know, most of them were on the road. And, you know, and thinking about what they're saying, like I remember, uh, I think it was Baxter Holmes's piece from a few years ago where he talked about like the rest disadvantages and the idea of Doc Rivers basically having said, that his players were playing like they were drunk when he was with the Celtics at one point hmm. and a sleep doctor basically saying that like, that's how the basketball is played is it's almost like they're out there drunk because they haven't had enough sleep. And, you know, in fairness to the Nuggets fans, I think a couple of them came at me a little bit over overly aggressively, but you know, more or less, I think there, there might've been truth to that. And that's exactly what would happen is you get agitated and kind of play out of character and, you know, re- behave out of character when you're exhausted and when you're tired. And I know that's been true of me before, and I'm sure all of us. And, um, you know, most of us don't have the athletic rigors of having to travel and play against professional basketball players for a living on short schedules. So 
yeah, it's been a weird year. I am looking forward to the playoffs once they start, but I'm hoping that teams can more or less get there healthy. And uh, I, I tweeted this last week. I'm a little bit concerned about the Nets at this point, more than a little bit concerned. Um, we've rarely seen James Harden miss real time. And now he's basically had a couple of setbacks where I think the one game he came back for, he played a couple minutes and then had to leave. And now just even this week, another setback. So when you take that and you factor in that Durant has been out for quite a while for the most part, um, if it's just Harden and Kyrie, you know, it's extremely talented team, but even if all three of them are there, there just hasn't been any cohesion. They have, there hasn't been a chance to build any cohesion. So I, I don't know what to make of anything. <laughs> you know, we haven't seen LeBron come back yet. Um, I'm sure they'll be fine if, if the two of them are healthy, him and AD. But it's, man, it, it, it feels wide open in a way that the MVP race is not. It seems like, you know, a, a very small segment of some people I respect in the industry think the race either is or should be close and it's not. But I do think the playoff race, for that reason, can be wide open because we don't know who's going to be healthy. We don't know where these teams are going to fall seating wise and, uh, you know, or who's going to make it just because of the plan rules. Well, we'll, we can come back to the MVP in a second because I want to I want to talk about that guy in uh, Denver. Um, my my latest video was on him, so we definitely should circle back to that. But you brought up Brooklyn, and one topic that always comes up when I talk to people and catch up to catch up with people, and they're asking me about the season, is the Nets. The Nets, I think they still are the odds-on betting favorite to win the title, um, and with at, depending on the sports book, some pretty ridiculous odds like you know implied odds of like 30 to 40 percent to win the title um yeah that kind of floors me and i know there's a a large chorus of people um plenty of whom are you know uh, full of really really insightful basketball observations and things like that who think the nets are the favorite where do you stand on them do you do you you know are you a nets believer do you kind of see them as the or a team to beat um or or are you kind of like me and maybe you have a few more reservations uh i I definitely have a a few reservations i mean what i'll say is this i think um is there the potential for them to be that good yeah right and i mean honestly watching them play during those few games that they were together and even when they're not when you have two of those three guys healthy like teams look beside themselves to figure out how to stop them. Um, And I I do think that, you know, as we talk about teams that have kind of stretched the limits of certain things, we watched the Warriors do that for a couple of years. Um, I do think that Brooklyn's offense is good enough to where it kind of doesn't have to conform to, you know, the idea of what we've looked at. And I'm, I'm sure you and other people have looked at where, Generally speaking, to be a contender, you've got to be kind of around the top 10 in both offense and defense. I don't think that's true of Brooklyn in the slightest. Um, you know, and, and, you know, LeBron had some Cleveland teams there at the end of his run in that second run there with Cleveland where they were like toward the bottom or they, they were, you know, in the bottom half of defense and where they ranked on defense and maybe even, you know, outside of the top 20. Um, and it didn't turn out to matter to get to the finals, but I do think it was kind of a factor in why they weren't extremely competitive in the finals. Um, But Brooklyn is really that good offensively to where it may not matter. And uh, if they're completely healthy, they really, it really may not matter. Um, 
my other thought too is that, and I'm not sure how strongly I believe this, but I do think there could be some benefit, at least early on, maybe for the first round, two rounds, of people haven't seen these guys play together. Mm. And um, as, as weird as that sounds, like in as much of a disadvantage as that seemingly should be uh, for guys to not have any cohesion. Um, you know, I've watched teams and, and I, I'm always kind of fascinated by the beginning of seasons where teams that don't have experience playing together, when they kind of jump out of the gate and they're hot right away. And um, I joked with Zach Lowe a couple weeks ago when I was talking with him that I, I have a really bad habit where I, I can't stop talking about my experiences covering the Knicks during, you know, five year run or whatever it was from 2012 to 2017. But I, I remember um, the first Nick team I covered in 2012 was that team where they had lost Jeremy Lin in the off season. Um, they didn't match his deal with Houston, but then they brought on like a bunch of geriatrics geriatrics. So there's like Jason Kidd, Rashid Wallace, Kurt Thomas, Marcus Camby, Pablo Prigioni, they're all 35 or older. Um, and nobody really thought they were going to be that good. Maybe they're like a back-end playoff team. And then they jump out of the gate and they're like six or seven and oh, they're bombing all these threes. Like they're completely unrecognizable from the year before. But nobody knew what to expect from them because nobody had watched them play. And it took a while for teams to adjust to how they played because they played more often than not, you know, four out. And we're switching everything probably too much defensively. And they, they just, you know, nobody had tape on them. And so they were difficult. And then teams pick up on what you're doing and they know how to guard you a little bit. Um, but there's going to be no sense of how to do that if and when the Nets get healthy right before the playoffs. And even if they do kind of figure out how they want to go about defending that, uh, good luck actually doing it. You might have an idea, but, um, I mean, you're – up against three of the, what, 10, 11, 12 at worst, I would say, best offensive players in the league, kind of wherever you put Kyrie, I guess, is the answer to that question. But, you know, good luck stopping them. Uh, you know, and it, but I, I do think that they're vulnerable, obviously. The defense is not that good. Um, but who knows, you know, whether, whether we haven't seen them play together, so it's hard to know how bad they really are, how good they really are. But I, I could never put a 30 or 40% implied probability of them winning uh, the whole thing either based on the fact that I haven't seen them. Do you regularly. know, do you know, um, could put you on the spot, do you know who their leader is in just raw on off, the guy who just of, of their rotation is associated with the largest increase um, in net rating? Hmm. Off the top of my head, I, I don't. Well, let me give no. you let me give you a hint. He has the best outside shooting numbers in the league in the last like. So Joe Harris. Joe <laughs> Harris, yeah. Um, and that's just like a very small little factoid that I've been bouncing around in my brain lately because I still haven't taken a deep dive on the Nets from like the way I like to get in there, X's and O's and film and kind of start to match up more of what yeah. I'm seeing with what we can measure. And of course, this year we've got small samples and everybody's injured. So it's like, I want to lean on that more. But I feel like every time I check in on a Nets game, which I mean, it's got to be like no more than six or eight times all year. Like I'm still, we talked about this before we recorded. I'm still going through the process of like, all right, I'm up to, I'm up to speed on this team. I'm up to speed on this team. All right, that's seven teams. How many are in the league? <laughs> okay. Um, 
So I haven't really, you know, I just am seeing the nets in passing. And what jumps out to me and, and what you really got me thinking about just a second ago when you were going through teams not being able to see them, what jumps out to me is how much of a really, like, um, ahead of the curve, D'Antoni kind of small ball system are they just running in general with the guys that they have? So that's the shooting and movement of Joe Harris, along with Jeff Green playing a lot of center. Um, and then, of course, they're, 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 you know, they're getting value out of some of these role players before they brought in guys like Blake Griffin. Uh, and then you just put out anyone out there. You put Kyrie or Harden, um, I guess Durant. I don't think he's played a lot of solo minutes with that lineup lately, but you just put one of them out there and you kind of have something akin to what Houston had in Harden. And then so to me, the, if you're following what I'm saying, the question becomes, oh, how much can you actually add stacking the other stars um, almost regardless of their skill set? Because you're, you're, the way you're playing offense and the lineups you're constructing just give you such a nice advantage anyway that your offensive ratings are already like 120-ish, um, which in the league right now is like eight. Eight or point eight eight points or so ahead of league average, and so you know if you add all three of them at the same time, do you go to a really impressive one twenty four one twenty five, or do exactly. you or do you get something crazy beyond that? Um, because that's certainly what the Suns were trying to cultivate with seven seconds or less, where they never were a top ten defense. You could you know nitpick about the two thousand six season when they were healthy with Kurt Thomas and all that. But it wasn't about a top 10 defense, much like with the 80s Lakers. It wasn't about a top 10 defense. It's about we're so good on offense that we're going to create an edge where we just need to kind of tread water on defense. So I see two big questions with them. One is what I just pointed out about the actual ceiling of their offense. Like how much can they differentiate? How resilient are they going to be in a playoff series against an elite defense? And two is the defense going to be kind of like neutral or is the defense going to be hemorrhaging? And you're talking about some uh, significantly better version of like the wizards of the last few years or something. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you hit the nail on the head is, you know, is there way, way more upside than what we've already seen offensively? Because I do think you at that point start to kind of dilute the concerns with the defense, at least, just to make it through the season. Um, I am curious, you know, just to see that, you know, where I do think the cohesion starts to matter a little bit, or maybe not, is, you know, I think for a while, what was interesting about this team, um, even when they were rolling, when they were still healthy, relatively healthy, they were winning a lot of their games, like 128, 124, you know, yeah. like one, you know, games where they go to overtime and it's, you know, they dominate the overtime. And I, I guess you can win that way now. Um, does it get more difficult to do that in the playoffs? Um, I do think they, you know, it's interesting the way they built their team. And we've kind of seen this before, but these are like really high level guys. You know, in the past, we used to see, you know, LeBron would have Mike Miller and Shane Battier and these guys. Joe Harris, uh, between him and, and you think about Landry Shamit, like they, it's interesting because they really do have the potential to kind of just try these lineups with their three guys and then kind of two wings where they basically are saying, screw it. Like we know we have the potential to get torched here defensively, but 
everybody out here can shoot. Three or four of the guys can really handle the ball at a high level. Certainly three of them, you know, are all world level. Um, so uh, you, you, even if they're at 120 per 100 possessions with just certain lineups, it does feel like there's probably still more potential to do even more than that mm-hmm. just because, of, you know, who's out there. But at a certain point, when you just need stops, you know, if you have a rough quarter even, um, it's not to say you're not going to make up for the rough quarter, but, like, do you have enough stops in those lineups? Um, is there a particularly bad matchup that you can get that really worries you? You know, if you have to play Philly and you've got to try to, you know, you've got to try to lock down and beat. Um, it, it, it'll be fascinating to watch. Like, I, they probably feel really good if not for the injuries that they're suffering just because, you know, if you had to – just guess, can you outscore everybody four times in a series? You probably would say, yeah, if you're Brooklyn, uh, certainly with the way they had it rolling, certainly with the way they had it rolling without even being at full strength. But I do think it becomes more interesting when you start looking at individual matchups. Um, you know, I, I would, like I said, I would never have them as the odds on favorite, um, certainly with the injuries and certainly with the lack of defense. But, you know, in a year like this, it's so strange anyway. It's not the craziest thing I've heard. And, when you watch them play, it's not the craziest assumption. You know, I, I get it. I, I wouldn't go that way, but I get it. So I'm excited to tell you about a deal with a new sponsor that tailors your personal care routine to your needs. With Hawthorne, all you do is take a short quiz and they'll send you what you need to look, feel, and smell great. The quiz is pretty fun, actually. For instance, my skin gets dry around seasonal changes, so you tell them stuff like that. They ask about hair length, so I went with longer than peak Dirk, um, stuff like that. They'll ask you how much you sweat. I kept looking for the option. It depends on who's playing in the game. And then you get a bundle tailored to your answers. So, for instance, I got a natural mint and basil soap, and yep, that is right up my alley. Uh, You get free shipping on your order and returns, so if you don't like what you get, they'll retailer something based on your feedback. And for my hardcore skin listeners, I love that they are cruelty-free, never use parabens, silicone, sulfates, aluminum, anything like that. So you can take the Hawthorne quiz today and get started on that personalized care routine by going to hawthorne.co and put in the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-A-W-T-H-O-R-N-E dot C-O, entering the promo code THINKINGBASKETBALL. Check it out today. It, it is interesting to think if there's a defense, that, and, and to your point, we haven't necessarily seen what they do. We haven't necessarily seen the structure or shape of that offense at its full potential, but it is interesting to think, is there some defense, um, whether it's in the finals or sitting near the top of the East, that could match up with them in a way that gives them problems. Um, just the shooting that you pointed out is kind of mind-blowing when you start to think about it because Durant is, to me, an all-time level shooter. Kyrie Irving is an incredible shooter. He's under like Their weakest shooter in the lineup could be James Harden, which is, which is pretty wild to think about. Wow. Um, and then I was having this conversation the other day with someone about building the best possible offensive team you could, picking any players in history. And we kind of stopped and said, well, what would the offensive rating be? 
like, is there a theoretical ceiling? Do you start to hit some serious diminishing returns given the rules and the way the game's officiated today? Because I was saying, like, I think the lineup I came up with, I wonder if you could get a 140 offensive rating. And the person I was talking to was like, yeah, you could. And I was like, wait, that's like 70% true shooting on average, right? <laughs> like, like let's, let's, let's think about this. At some point, defenses are going to really, really, really force you to hit those threes um, and kind of stop giving up so many layups. And if you can't hit threes, I guess, over, you know, 40%, um, do you kind of just get stuck at some hypothetical ceiling. And the craziest part is, does this actually apply to the Brooklyn Nets in this year's playoffs? Scary. Right? Just, like, just... like, is that it? Is if they're, if they're down with everyone else at 120 or something like that, are they kind of cooked because of the defense? But if they can keep pushing the boundaries and just throw out a lineup where Kevin Durant is your center or something, and it's the five guys that you just mentioned, um, how high can you go? Yeah. It's it's going to be really. I, I mean, I'm 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 fascinated by what the possibilities are for them, but also, um, all of a sudden, I don't know. And this is obviously they want everyone healthy, but if they're not for some reason, that's not nearly as formidable. You know, when you're talking about two of those three guys, and you know the rest of who you have, because I think for every guy you lose, all of a sudden the ability to really make good, great use of Blake Griffin or someone like that, I think you lose that, you know, if, if you're asking Blake to be your second, third guy out there, even in a bench rotation. Uh, it's just it's just different, you know, whereas, like, he can score, maybe not at will, but very well, very efficiently when he's your fourth or fifth guy. Um, and you can make more allowances for what he's not going to be able to do defensively or not doing well defensively because your scoring is up, you know, when you've got everybody healthy. So it, it it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be really interesting to see kind of what style the team that's matched up against them in the playoffs wants to play. Um, you know, do you try to get them out on the break more? Is it completely out of your interest to want to play an up and down game with a team like Brooklyn, um, you know, as small as they can go and just thinking about the score and, and, and the way that they can score. Um, do you want to play slow with them where, you know, Brooklyn probably doesn't mind that either just because they are happy to go one-on-one -on -one with you. If anyone is happy with that, James Harden probably is. So it's, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a Rubik's cube figuring out kind of how you'd want to play them and trying to figure out what they do and how to stop what they do. But how much of it do you have to stop based on who's in the lineup? Who's not? Well, also just the staggering and the bench minutes. And so to me, at some level, I can just see a shell of the Houston offense where Harden is playing Harden's role again in Brooklyn. And then Chris Paul, I mean, um, Kyrie Irving is always going to be the guy who could play 2018 Chris Paul when Harden's off. And then you flank one of them with Durant. And when Durant's off, you flank one of them with each other. So you always have two of those guys and shooting. That That's where I think having three of them potentially adds some layer of resiliency where you, you never really have weak offensive lineups. Um, you never even have average offensive lineups or anything like that. So, yeah, the, obviously having the three of them is is, is really quite the um, – it's going to be quite <laughs> the exciting thing to see. Hopefully we get to see it. We're talking so much about offense here. I've been you know, keeping track of the offensive explosion 
that we continue to see. And I don't know if I keep like saying, um, I don't know if I'm going to have a formal piece of content that I ever put out on this. So I'm just trickling it out over and over. Uh, at this point, I think le- we're, we're starting to like trend down a little bit. But last month, the offensive rating around the league was over 113. Um, five or six years ago, an average month might be 105, 106. And it's kind of steadily ticked up. And it was ticking up before we even got to the bubble last year. The, the month before the bubble, I think it was around 112. Um, and stayed in that area in the bubble. And we've kind of continued to progress upward. Here's my question. A, do you have any general thoughts on that? And B, do you think we're going to see some tightening of the screws given all the attrition and fatigue that we talked about where teams know that they got to get to May this year and they know they have to battle the schedule? Do we finally see an intensity leveling up that actually makes defense a little bit stingier? And so last year in the bubble, you know, even though we're in the NBA playoffs, the offensive rating was like 112 or something, right? Do we actually get a little bit more normal playoff environment from a defensive success standpoint where, you know, your average offensive rating is down at like, I don't know, 109 or something, something that doesn't seem quite as mind bending. I don't, I'm not convinced that we do, um, you know, and, and you and I messaged about this a little bit. I was telling you, I didn't have any huge, huge overarching, you know, thoughts about why offense is up, but you know, a, a part of it really does just feel like some of these teams are firing away at will. I mean, you still have a couple holdouts sort of ish, you know, the, the Spurs have never been a team that just launches from three the way everybody else does. They've always kind of, you know, taken what the defense has given them or, you know, in some cases even just look for mid-range shots with Demar and Rudy Gay and some of the other guys. But, you know, for other teams, even if they were shooting threes before, now it's just kind of at such a massive level, you know, and, and you know, I think one is teams take more of them, but then two, as guys get more efficient with them, as it becomes a part of people's regular routines, um, you know, kind of looking at what Brooke Lopez did a couple of years ago where he went from not really taking any to then being, you know, a competent volume three-point shooter. I think that's some of what we're seeing. And, you know, seeing guys that are, you know, that are competent from shooting out there, as you spread it out so much, after a while it doesn't really feel even like necessarily bad defense as much as it's that, you know, obviously you've got, you know, the offensive rebounding working differently than it did a few years ago with regards to, you know, the clock being sped up for these guys. And so there's more potential to score that way. The pace is obviously up as well. You've got less distractions because you've got less fans in the audience, um, which, you know, whether that makes it easier, better, or if it improves the free throw shooting. So it's weird because on some level, when I watch the games being played, I don't ever – it's very rare that I sit and watch a game being played, and I'm like, man, there's no defense tonight. Like, every now and then there is, and, you know, normally when that's happening, I call it out or tweet about it. But a lot of it just kind of seems like the changes around the margins, which some of them are more than just marginal changes. Like, not having fans in the seats is like a really weird kind of thing that we're still getting used to and probably does impact the way that, you know, the game is played, particularly right. when they're in a bubble and there's not – the vast depth perception issue that some of these teams have. 
Um, I, I think that's more of a thing at the college level, but you know, we're, we're sitting and watching Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray go back and forth for 50, you know, nightly in a series. And it's like, wait a minute. So, you know, some of these things probably don't have to be here to stay. And maybe they're just kind of weird one-offs because of the state of the world and the arenas and everything. But some of it feels sustainable just because, you know, these teams are just gunning from three. And even if the defense is decent, you know, if, if the offense is better and guys have more space than, you know, than they're used to, and you're trying to figure out who you're going to let beat you, Jokic or the guys that are just standing around the three-point line and trying to double Jokic to stop him from getting 49 on you and, you know, having to try to get out to the shooter that he's going to pass to that was open. It, it Sometimes it, I just think that there's too much of an advantage that offenses have right now. Um, and a lot of times when I'm watching it, it doesn't necessarily just look like bad defense. And I get that the impression that you get from just looking at the box scores would be that defenses are horrible. And sometimes they are, but I don't, I don't always think that. I just think that the offenses are kind of all-time greats. You've got a bunch of players that are in the midst of some of their best seasons. And, you know, again, I guess you could try to attribute that to defense if you want to, but um, defenses are kind of being tasked with stuff they've never had to think about or worry about. Um, and you know, I, I don't know that the numbers are going to come down. And I think that says a lot about just how much talent, how much skill there is and how many different things the defenses have to kind of be mindful of and really can't wrap their arms around fully right now. Hmm. I think the days of like tuning into an NBA game and seeing a defense just completely dogging it out there on a, on a random night in January. I mean, that feels like it's been gone for a while. Um, you know, a lot of this has to do with being smarter uh, about managing minutes and, and uh, you know, sports nutrition and, and sort of rest and all that stuff. And so you've got fresh legs and you've got more valuable bodies out there. But I do, I kind of have had the sense, and maybe I'm on an island with this theory, um, and maybe it's because I've had a unique perspective on the year. I was finishing Greatest Peaks when the year started and just knew I wasn't going to be able to start watching games the way I normally do during a season for like at least four to six weeks into the year. And it has felt to me that the intensity has picked up a little bit. And I typically associate that with defensive success. And I think you're, you're spot on. I completely agree that the way the game is set up, the rules and the way it's officiated and the skill and the outside shooting is going to create a pretty high, um, sort of general def- uh, offensive floor in terms of efficiency around the league. But I'm, I'm still kind of holding out that there's a, there's a gear of defense that we might see. I, I don't know. We'll find out. Maybe. I mean, I, one thing I'd be interested to look at, too, um, is, I mean, you always have this option, but also offenses can benefit from it, too. As benches are used less, when the playoffs roll around and like you said, the intensity is up at a higher level. Does that kind of have some potential to, to try to um, keep things in check a little bit more? I only ask that just because too, the other thing um, you've had so many injuries now this season to key guys, guys that are going to dictate who wins the title. Um, is there some kind of mandate on the teams to kind of keep those minutes in check for those players, the LeBrons and um, we've talked about the Brooklyn guys a little bit to where you don't want re-injury. And if that's happening, um, 
is, is is there some sense that defenses can keep things better in check just because the starters are playing more minutes and some of these superstars that do drive those massive you know historical sort of numbers um if they keep them in check that way just because some of the guys that you're used to making the history are, are maybe not going to be able to play 43 minutes in the playoffs or maybe they will and Hopefully they don't get hurt if that's the case. But this is just such a weird year in so many different ways where I don't have any immediate expectation for anybody. Um, you know, we already saw some weirdness in the bubble last year with the Heat making it to the finals from a spot that we normally don't see teams make it from. Um, if you told, if you were to tell me that that's going to happen this year too, you know, I wouldn't be completely, completely, completely stunned just because I feel like this season's kind of asking for it. Right. With some weird stuff we've already seen. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I, I think the other thing is the scheme ability. You know, we're, we're, you mentioned this, we're going through the season so quickly. And so, you know, you're not, you're not going to have as much time to prepare. Um, you know, I don't, I haven't checked in with anyone in the league if they're walkthroughs and, game preps are shorter and things like that. But I mean, it makes sense to me if you said uh, we've simplified everything from night to night, especially with all the lineup changes and the games are coming at, at us fast and furiously. But by the time we get to the playoff setting, then we can scheme um, and we can actually focus on how to take away some of the great strengths and great offensive stars that you mentioned. However, Chris, I do wonder if there's some guys that you can't really scheme against. Um, and watching Mr. Jokic play all week, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you stop an offense built around him when he has, like, competent shooters who can cut? Because I don't see it. I, I, I think that teams, and I don't want to frame it this way or have it misconstrued at all you know, to call it, um, I'm not even going to call it what I was thinking. I was going to say blessing, but you know, for other teams to not have Murray there, obviously is to their advantage. Um, that might be the extent to which teams are really right. You know, done a favor, you know, this postseason because I, I don't know what you're supposed to, to do with the guy. I mean, um, there were some critiques this week about, you know, from the, our, our friends at TNT, the idea that, uh, Embiid plays the game the way it's supposed to be played for a big man where he gets down there and he's bodying guys in the paint. Uh, Jokic does that. <laughs> he's been pretty unstoppable from the paint, like top five efficiency-wise from there. Gets fouled often enough, but he also is incredible from mid-range. Like, I feel like he takes that mid-range jumper where he can shoot over anyone he wants to, that rainbow jumper. I feel like he rarely even hits the rim with it. It's just such a perfect so looking mark. It's such a soft shot. Yeah. Um, so many of his shots fall through that way too. And obviously, I mean, this is someone that if his free throw percentage were a little bit higher, we're talking about a 50, 40, 90 sort of season that he's having. Um, and, you know, on top of like averaging damn near a triple double and being probably underrated for what he does defensively, you know, not good, but, you know, not bad either. I think he's just kind of an average, slightly above average defender. So I don't know how you stop him because when Murray was there, you were still watching teams sometimes send two defenders at him at the free throw line or wherever he had the ball. And if you've ever watched those really bad, um, you know, like Bruce Lee type movies where guys 
almost like a video game or something when you got the level set really low. What and... is this blasphemy? Bad Bruce Lee movies? It's not such a thing. <laughs> like just stuff when you watch guys that clearly are no match for kind of like the villains kind of come up out of nowhere. Video games where, you know, two or three people come at you, but the AI is set for them to respond more slowly than you can hit them. That's kind of what it looks like when people are trying to double Jokic or trap Jokic sometimes. This is true. Where it's like they're just giving him a wide open person to pass to, and he's already taller than you, and he's already got better vision than you do, and he's already got eyes in the back of his head, and he's already got guys that are capable of knocking down a shot. So, yeah, it was probably even more of a concern to try to defend him that way when Murray was there. But even without him, I mean, he's still got Michael Porter – and he's still got, like, you know, a brand-new shiny toy in Aaron Gordon. And he's got a couple guys that can knock down shots. Granted, they've been inconsistent this year, Will Barton and, and different people, um, you know. But, I mean, it's still a really, really great offense, even if it's just Jokic out there. And your best bet, if you're a team playing against them, even without Murray, is the idea that Mike Malone just kind of decides to let – Jokic get too long of a rest, and then you go on a 19-to-1 run or something like that. But I want no business of having to guard Jokic. I still don't really want to play against the Nuggets in the first round because of Jokic, even if I feel like I've got more talent on paper than they do, even if you've had a pretty good season series against them. There's just so few ways to guard the guy. And, you know, I just want to make one thing clear. Um, and I know you said we talk about this later, so maybe it's not the time for it. But um, for all the conversation that um, – you know, Jokic, so many suggestions that he's the MVP, but he's only the MVP because other guys have gotten hurt. No, he, to me, should be the MVP. And I was kind of arguing this before. I think it was kind of neck and neck with him and Embiid um, before Embiid got hurt. And, you know, if you want to say at that point that, like, kind of process of elimination, it makes it an easier choice, he could have very easily been the MVP before anyway. Um, and, you know, to me, I, I don't think it's one of these things where he's, like, the default you know, MVP only because all these other guys got hurt. Like, I I didn't really feel like it was LeBron's MVP to lose anyway. I, I thought it was a weird argument. I think he's had a good season, but, like, I didn't think he was the guy anyway. Yeah. I thought Jokic was the one that was putting up, like, numbers from him that we've never seen before. And to me, whether that should carry weight or not, um, you know, I know it's not most improved player, but when you're a superstar and you improve the way he has – I think you could put Embiid in that same conversation, but I kind of felt like it was only between those two, really. Um, and that Jokic was kind of being weighted down by his team's standings, where his team ranked in the standings. And then, you know, <laughs> as the other guys fall out, and then you look up and and uh, Jokic's team all of a sudden is one fifteen of 18 or whatever it was, then it becomes a really easy argument. And he's putting up historic numbers, and those numbers are way better than anything else he's put up in the past. So it all made perfect sense to me, like him being the favorite and now just solidifying the fact that he's a favorite in my mind. Yeah, I, I never get too much into the NB, the the sort of the nitty-gritty of the MVP race with the final guys because it's so philosophical and people, the, the league wants different philosophies to be able to vote. They don't want to outline the criteria more clearly. And that's sure. that's fine, right? I, I have no issue with that. But I just tend to try to focus on guys who are like, okay, um, this is either a great circumstance for him and the field is thinned out because of the way you think about this, maybe like a Derrick Rose in 2011, or here's a set of guys playing at an MVP level, and this is LeBron during the heart of his career where 
there's voter fatigue, but we should still, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to acknowledge that like he's either the best player or he's clearly playing at a level where most guys would win MVP if they played at that level. With Jokic this year, he's doing things, um, at least the totality of his, his statistical profile. Uh, that's counting stats, efficiency, all-in-one metrics across the board. He's doing things that I believe have guaranteed every player in history an MVP. His, his numbers are that good. Uh, his performance is that good. Uh, just like checking every box. So, yeah, obviously I have no problem with him being the front runner for MVP, but it would have been an aberration, um, and we'll see what happens with where the Nuggets finish and where everything shakes out, but it would have been a complete aberration to not have that guy on most top lines, given how well he's played, and I don't think many people... I'm interested to see the reaction of this latest video I have on Jokic, where I talk about how he arguably become the best offensive big man in the history of the sport. I don't think many people fully understand just like how crazy he is on offense now. Like his right. his his level on like I just really what's it what are his weaknesses? Uh, it's just hard to find any. It's really interesting too because um I feel like before and you know like the other thing I think that gets lost too is like the Nuggets are still a relatively young team, maybe a little bit older now, just with some of the vets they brought in and stuff. But they're not an old team by any means, and obviously it was him and Murray, you know, that the team was built around. Um, and you know, as I, I picked Jokic to be the MVP last year, not at the end of the season, but just leading into the season, I thought you know he would win it, and I thought that you know the Nuggets, I think going into last year, were coming off that two seed or whatever it was. Um, that I thought he was like a natural person to kind of pinpoint to say it, it just kind of feels like his time. And I, obviously I ended up being a year early on that. But, um, yeah, I, the, the knock before was that, well, he is a dominant player, but he can't dominate to the extent that other guys can because the ball isn't in his hands every play and because he's not dictating the offense mm. because Corey's the one doing that. And now, like, you know, now he has to. Uh, I would argue that he was doing that before, even when Murray was hurt earlier in the year and banged up and just not playing well. Um, and, you know, I think the worst part of all of it, you know, from a personal standpoint, just for Murray, is that he had just finally started to kind of hit the level that he was at in the bubble last year, yeah. uh, which was really incredible to kind of repeat that um, and difficult to repeat that for someone as young as he is and someone that's still growing as a player. But um, so now we get to see Jokic again, you know, like it, it sucks obviously that Murray's hurt, but you know, the, the, the one cool thing that comes of it, not that you ever want that to happen is that <laughs> I love watching Jokic dominate because he's a guy that, you know, their offense in the past does not operate that way. And, and quite frankly, um, again, not that you're ever rooting for it to have to be the case with clay or Jamal or anyone. Um, it's really cool watching superstars just have to kind of carry their team as long as you know they're going to be in the playoffs anyway. Um, watching Steph do this, like what he's done the last week, two weeks, um, has been incredible. And, you know, we're not used to having to see these guys do it on their own. But what I'm learning and what the season's taught me, Lillard was, you know, was uh, doing the same thing with all the injuries they were facing earlier in the year. These guys can carry their teams if they have to. Uh, some can't. Some just are on awful, awful, awful teams where – or maybe they're still a little bit young and, you know, maybe they haven't had to try it before. But, man, it's it's something watching Jokic 
It's been something watching Curry. It was really fun to watch Lillard. We've seen LeBron do this sort of thing before. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how you stop Jokic. Hard enough to do it now, but even tougher with Murray there. Um, and I, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Like, I, I don't see them getting out of the second round necessarily. Right. But I didn't see them getting out of the second round last year when they were down 3-1 either. So it'll be very, very interesting to watch to see what happens. A couple things there. One is that I actually got into this in in this video on Jokic. He kind of has the same offensive responsibility of what we think of as these heliocentric guys who have the ball all the time. But mm-hmm. he but he does it with half the time of possession. So you know your your Trey your Trey Youngs and Lucas. There's only one of them. I don't know why I just pluralized those people. I, I've always been confused when you know, like a, a Michael Jordan, um, <laughs> Chris. Um, but Trey and and Luca are over fifty percent of the time possessing the ball on offense, and Jokic is more like twenty five percent. So he wow. he does all this stuff without sort of monopolizing the rock and I actually think this is a major advantage that he has I don't expect his time of possession to go up that much at all with Murray out of the lineup because it's give it to him look for the action move along and then he chases the ball and rescreens and can go into two-man game and frankly he might be the best two-man game big man in league history I'm not even sure who number two would be given his skill set and so it's this perpetual involvement with screens, touch passes, roll man, um, pick and pop action, things that don't necessarily require him having the ball, but he's actually the focal point of the action, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's always stood out to me. Um, I've, I've, I was saying this to someone else recently where I kind of hate, the, the one thing I kind of hate about this, I guess it's better than nothing, but the... the idea the reporters have to do these zoom calls and um you know that everybody's on them and so when you have a fun moment or something that you would normally kind of elaborate on from an interview um it's kind of shared by everybody because it's instant and you've got video of it so last year i asked Jokic kind of about his offensive possessions and specifically the idea of so obviously he 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 doesn't waste a whole lot of time he's not possessing the ball nearly as long but what's interesting within that time that he has is that he also doesn't really waste dribbles he a lot of times I would say four or five times a game he catches the ball at the elbow you know on a handoff whatever and he gets it and he just stands there for like four seconds Mm -hmm. without dribbling he's just surveying the floor he's looking around he's trying to figure out if he wants to shoot himself He's normally waiting for a guy to back cut. And um, I find that fascinating because he doesn't hold the ball long, but then he does hold it a really long time within the scope of like not dribbling, but he doesn't possess it a long time compared to the other dominant ball handlers in the league. Um, And I asked him about it and he was like, well, I operate that way because I'm slow. I can't move fast. I don't have a choice to move fast. So he's just really, and I, and quite frankly, you know, going full circle, I guess, with all of it, um, it's what makes him interesting. But I think it's also like why people don't understand how great he is, is that he doesn't look like anything we've seen before. Um, exactly. He's, yep. He's like in, extremely efficient with this movement. He's a big dude. He's taller than everybody else. 
He's got a shooting touch like a, a two guard, um, but he doesn't really force much. And I mean, he, he doesn't even dribble if he doesn't have to. So like, <laughs> it's just it's just he's kind of a polar opposite in the way we think about all this stuff, you know. And his skill set. I mean, it's been a completely pointless argument to even say like where he ranks within the all-time big men as a passer. I mean, I think he's been at the top of that list now yeah. for a while, if we're being honest. But like you said, just all around scoring and all around, you know, offensive package. Yeah, that conversation is overdue, but in some ways, like, it, I, I don't know. He, he's very much one of those players. Like, I think he's one of those barbershop players where if you don't watch him much, you won't understand how great he is. And um, why this postseason could be fun, because I think this could be one where it proves it for people. I think he's shown enough of those moments in the playoffs already, but I think this could really just drive it home for people without Murray there, how great he is. Um, but it also could be annoying in the sense that if they if yeah. they play him out, yeah. because Murray's not there, people are going to use it as ammunition. So who knows? But he's great. I mean, obviously you know that. I know that. Um, I wish other people could see that it's not that he's great and that he's going to win this award because everyone's out, but that he deserved it before anyway. And that it just made it an easier, more simplistic kind of argument as to why he won it. So I'm glad you mentioned dribbles. Um, speaking of things that get cut for time, I also looked at his dribbles for this video. And I said he's about half of the time of possession as leaders like Young and Doncic. He's about one third of the number of dribbles. So <laughs> they they take they uh, Luca, Doncic, Lillard, Harden, they take about 500 dribbles every 36 minutes. And the league average is 130, and Jokic was 137. Uh, he, he, he dribbles the ball as much as Jalen Brown, if that's a barometer for anyone. It's just very little wasted movement. Exactly. I mean, you know, he, and, and, I mean, like, it speaks to how – I mean, that's, that's literally efficiency. Um, and that's literally why he's so difficult to guard, because he's not going to – you give him a mismatch, and, like, yeah, he's certainly likely to try to take advantage of it on his own, you know, guys too small to be guarding him or not good enough to be guarding him. But like, he's still scanning. He's kind of like a robot where he's still scanning for, okay, I've got a clear advantage here, but is there someone else that because I've got an advantage here, is there someone that's going to come run up as a help defender and try to stop me from getting all the way to the basket? And if they do that, or if I, you know, make a trick with my eyes here and kind of do a no look thing, mm -hmm. can I get some kind of layup at the back? Like he's running through all these basically options in his mind at like warp speed it's like a robot and um it's scary how good he is <laughs> i i had a bit in the video about his um layup radar and then when i finished i realized that i probably should have named it something like ladar i think we need a we need a term for what's going through his head out there because he's got some kind of detection system um yeah Anyway, yeah. well, Chris, we started with a total blank slate, and um, now I feel like we could just talk for hours, but the uh, the time has come to an end. Do you have anything you want to plug while you're here? Do you have anything you want to share with, you know, where people can find your work or anything like that? Not at all, no. I, um, <laughs> I've got, I've got, <laughs> I feel like other people have better ways they can spend their time. Um, I've got, I think I've got a link in my Twitter bio with my just with my recent articles from Sports Illustrated, which are still pretty new just because I've, I've only been there a couple months. But if people want to check that out, they can. But no, I'll, I'll come out with a book that I've got a I think I mentioned. I've got to turn in in the next week, the full manuscript and everything with that. 
it'll be out in January, but even that I can't fully plug just because they're, they're waiting a little bit to release the presale information. It's not even on sale yet. So I, I hate even mentioning it that much just because I feel like it's a tease, but it'll, it'll be here soon. And um, I'm hopeful that it'll be worth the wait for, for folks. I know Nick fans are kind of on, on edge to read it and have been so supportive with this. I appreciate all the support with that. It, it is an historical book and um, one that I'm quite interested in. So hopefully you'll come back and, um, talk about it once it's out uh looking forward to that thanks so much man i really appreciate it. it's been a, a joy uh joining you on here man I, I really appreciate you having me a huge thanks to chris remember you can now check out all of his great work he's built up a, a pretty good catalog immediately over at sports illustrated and remember to check out today's sponsor hawthorne.co that's h-a-w-t-h-o-r-n-e dot co enter the promo code thinking basketball that is a great way to support this podcast of course the best way to support this podcast and all things thinking basketball is to sign up directly at patreon.com slash thinking basketball where you get extra content and access to our historical database and we have a discord community server every month we have a live q a also plenty of discussion throughout the season uh, historical projects things like that it's uh, patreon.com slash thinking basketball hope you enjoyed this one thanks as always for listening all the way to the end and of course wherever you are i hope you are having a great day 